Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we have a very special episode on freedom of information. We are joined by criminologists Kevin Walby and Alex Luscombe, and we'll be discussing how to use access to information or ATI requests as tools for data collection in our research. Unfortunately, my co-host Tommy Cook can't join us today as he's over across the pond in Germany uh, completing some research over the summer, but he'll be back very shortly and we can look forward to some solo podcasts on his end as well. And while this is a little bit of a different flavor of an episode, we do hope to clarify some of the noise associated with freedom of information. So with that said, let's get started. joined by Kevin Walby, an associate professor and chancellor's research chair in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Winnipeg. Kevin has written extensively on issues of policing, security, and surveillance, and is currently the book review editor for Surveillance and Society, as well as the Security Journal. I'm also joined by Alex Luscombe, PhD student in the Center for Criminology at the University of Toronto. Alex is published in Social Forces, the British Journal of Criminology, and International Political Sociology, and he's also the winner of the prestigious Canada Graduate Scholarship. So Kevin, Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you both doing today? Great. Doing good, doing good. So we are in Winnipeg. We're, we're, we're recording this podcast um, from uh, a holiday inn at the University of Winnipeg. We're here for a conference. So thank you both for sitting down with me. Uh, today we're going to chat a little bit about information. And it's been a sort of theme of this entire podcast to look at issues of information and how we understand information and uh, what information tells us and how it's spread. Uh, and you both work quite a bit on freedom of information. Um, so could you start and tell us a little bit about the work that you have done? Um, we'll start with you, Kevin. We've done lots of work together using freedom of information or FOI requests to examine different criminal justice agencies. And then we've written about freedom of information to try to like, theorize how, how should we think of FOI? Is it just a route to transparency? Does it promote democracy? Or is it something different? Can there be kind of unintended consequences of using FOI, FOI being on the books in terms of how people think about the relationship between them and the state? So. We've tried to cover all the bases. So let's start off uh, I, just asking you, Kevin, how you got involved in FOI research? I believe I was in Ottawa. I was working on my PhD. I was at uh, the OPERG, the, the Carleton OPERG, the Public Interest Research Group uh, there. Jeff Monahan was there, and uh, he was using FOI a little bit. At the same time, Mike Larson at York was using ATI FOI for his doctoral work on security certificates. And it just seemed like just kind of naturally came together, like four or five people started using it. And then we started to share them and we started to talk about the insights we were getting and how they're very different than what was in the newspapers. 
And then very shortly after, I I met Alex at UVic, and Alex did a really brilliant honors thesis, like a it was like a dissertation on CSIS, used dozens and dozens of ATI requests, and really it was something on CSIS that had not been uh, written about before. It really pulled back something on CSIS and showed how it was operating in a, in a really unique way. And then he's just been plowing ahead, and I've been plowing ahead, and it's just become part of the craft of research for us. But there wasn't one big book or one big moment. I think it just just bumped into some other people who were doing it and thought, hey, we're getting we're getting somewhere with this. We're finding something out that we wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, we've had several guests on on this pod and every time we ask or we talk to them, it seems like they're uh, the ways in which they get into their research area uh, tends to be really contingent and uh, based on a lot of factors that are kind of unpredictable. So Alex, tell us how you got into uh, FOI research. Yeah, I think mine was, I mean, Kevin has touched on it a little bit, but it was very random and unexpected. Um, and I'll have to admit that when I was an undergraduate student, um, when I first started using access to information and free information, I didn't know what it was until Kevin actually told me. Um, maybe just has something to do with the fact that, of my very poor high school education. Or I don't know what it is. Just generally ignorant uh, with of, you on of that most one. Canadian law, <laughs> laws at the time. But um, so I was going through the sociology degree at UVic, and I think by the time I got to my third year, I had basically decided to do the honors program, which just involves just like any other program, finding a, a supervisor to supervise your like fifty or whatever page thesis that you want to do some original research. Uh, and Kevin was coming in at that time, I think from his postdoc at the University of Toronto. He was starting as an assistant professor at UVic, and so we, I got paired up with him because we were working in similar areas, and I was really excited. And I basically just started doing this project that was related to the accountability mechanisms that oversee CSIS, particularly CERC, the Security Intelligence Review Committee. Mm-hmm. I was going through annual records and things that were publicly available to try and understand how that mechanism actually holds CSIS accountable, if it does. Mm -hmm. And Kevin just at one point said, you know what you should do? You should also look at another source of information. You should get to the backstage. You should try and generate some records using ATI. And that is basically what I learned, that there was a law and a whole series of laws in this country that empower citizens to request access to information from governments. Yeah. I had no idea it existed before. It seemed insane. Mm-hmm. And I just, that was my first real foray into using it. I was very confused. I think I was very bad at using it. Mm-hmm. I often took the word of FOI coordinators at face value. I wasn't particularly active about challenging them or asking them questions or anything. I just kind of said, this is what I want. And if they gave it to me, then I took it and ran yeah. with it. And yeah, that was the first time I did it. And then I did it a bit more during my master's, and the rest is history. I continue to work with Kevin on these matters, mostly on methodological interventions related to ATI. But You guys have a ton of articles out on, on strategies for dealing with the gatekeepers and dealing with the people who are in control of this information. Can you talk a little bit uh, about how uh, you go about and trying to fill out an ATI and uh, give our listeners a sense of what actually goes into the process of getting this information that's often heavily guarded? I think that 
One of the things that we've done is is to try to encourage people to think of FOI as a as a craft because uh, when it comes to actually using it and practicing it, it's it's difficult to, to kind of narrow it down to any step by step. I mean, there are the basic processes like you fill out a form if it's a federal request. I think this is not the case anymore, but we used to attach five dollars to it and you submit it. So you have to give them money to get the information federally, and then provincially, each province has its own. Uh, FOI Act, and each one might require money, it might not. I think uh, Alberta definitely requires money, some of the other ones do, and then some of them are, are free. Uh, so once you submit that, um, it basically gets processed. Sometimes you get a call from the actual FOI coordinator, uh, and they'll usually want to kind of further discuss the request with you and what it exactly it is that you're uh, looking for, and maybe they ask you what you're going to do with it and who you are, if you're a journalist or an academic or a student or whatever. Um, and then you kind of just wait, and, and usually within these laws, there's a 30-day minimum, but they almost never actually respect that, so you, it can take, what, like six months, eight months, five years, I don't know what the, <laughs> the longest Kevin has waited for information is, but I mean, sometimes you just submit a request, you don't hear back for a very long time, you email them and try and bother them to process it faster, and then you just randomly hear back maybe a year later, mm. and you get information that maybe reflects what you wanted, maybe doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, there's other stages. So once you actually receive your information, usually it'll have sections redacted. What does redaction mean? So redaction is basically just that they go through the document according to the law. And if they think that certain information, you know, releasing it would be a violation of that person's individual privacy, or maybe it would like threaten national security or something, they'll basically use that section of the law to withhold it. And so they're just kind of editing the document down and only releasing to you what they think that you should uh, have. But then, of course, you might disagree with those sections, or maybe you think that they kind of misused the sections, and they might be saying that we should get rid of this because it would violate someone's privacy, but maybe it would actually just disclose something that's embarrassing, mm -hmm. in which case it's not really proper use of it. So that introduces the next stage where you can basically appeal the outcome of any request uh, with the Office of the Information Commissioner. And we do that a lot, and that just involves kind of putting together really creative legal arguments for why we think that the outcome should be reviewed and the information that has been redacted maybe should be released to us. And the redaction, is, is that one person's uh, sort of decision, one individual's decision to redact something or to not disclose information for any reason? I think it depends on the request. So sometimes if, if a request is fairly innocuous, the FOI coordinator will just do it on their own. They'll just pull up the law, they'll go through the text, they'll cut some of it out, and that'll be that. But we do know that sometimes they have little meetings, maybe they'll pull in some other personnel, depending on the, the type of agency, maybe someone like a superintendent or maybe a police chief even in some, some police agencies will be in on the decision. Uh, and they don't necessarily know who you are, and they're not like spying on you necessarily, but they're looking at your requests, they're looking at the information they might disclose, and that it becomes a kind of more political decision at that point. It goes beyond just the letter of the law. There's some other players involved there, and they're making political normative decisions about what to cut out. And that's where it becomes really interesting. It goes beyond the, the letter of the law, and you look at how FOI law works in action, just something little like that, who else is in the room deciding what to cut out, could have a big impact on what's actually disclosed, what becomes known about the issue. So I am a budding 
FOI uh, researcher or someone interested in uh, starting an FOI project. Um, and I look to you, Alex and Kevin, and I say, uh, what are some tips or what are some guidelines for uh, embarking on this FOI journey and using this in my research? How do you respond to me? There's a number of steps that you can take. First of all, you need to figure out what agency or agencies are you interested in. That can be hard because it's about doing some kind of preliminary research and digging to find out you know, if you're interested in X, what government body might have those files or what government bodies might have them. And so you can do that through online research, making phone calls, doing some interviews, reading news media, and so on, and trying to narrow it down. So that's the first step. If it's a federal request, uh, the second step I would do is go onto the database that the federal government has where they just basically post previously completed ATI requests. They don't post all of them, but they post a lot of them. And you can just, since it's an informal request, it's already been processed, you just have to click a button on the website and say, I also want that. Because I mean, once an ATI request or FOI request has been processed, it's then part of the public record and you, you have access to it. You don't have to pay anything. If assuming the journalist already processed it, paid for it, mm -hmm. got it, it's now anybody's. So going there, searching your agencies that you're interested in and, and getting access to whatever has already been disclosed is another good place to start. And then you, know, you could then go through those records and read them just like you would read anything else. But I would put a particularly close eye for the types of documents and the names of documents because bureaucracies all have weird acronyms and programs and document types like DOC59C4 and things like that. And mm -hmm. if you don't know the name of that record because you don't know anyone in the agency and you've never filed a request with them before, they're not really going to tell you. Yeah. And, but by having that information and knowing, hey, I know this agency produces all of these documents every time they do X, you can then request them. And you can learn that from seeing other internal documents. So I would do that. And the next thing I would do is basically just write out the request. You can either frame it really broadly if you have no idea what you're really interested in, like you're interested in some program and when it was created and say it was a training program, when it was created and who it was kind of taught to, you could just generally ask for all records on that. Or you could be way more focused and you could say, I know that this person did a speech here. I want all of those records. I want all of the emails related to it or whatever. So you can either do a kind of focused approach, and Kevin, I think, usually calls this like a, a shotgun approach versus a targeted approach, where the shotguns are just kind of shooting blindly for whatever you can get. The focused approach, the targeted one, you're basically narrowing it down. And then next, I will be ready to talk with FOI coordinators. So unless your request is really basic and really straightforward, they're probably going to call you. Call you or email you. I think they usually call you. And here, I would take notes. So you want to, just like you were doing any other kind of field work, keep really detailed memos about everything that they say to you over the phone, everything that you say to them. And you can generate information too about like how you were feeling and all of that other stuff based on best practices of keeping these kinds of, of field notes and memos. Um, and so keeping a very detailed record trail. And then once you actually receive the information, you want to familiarize yourself with the actual FOI laws, go through the request, look at any redactions, see what section of the law they've cited in order to take that information out, make sure it kind of makes sense. Like if it's a small little redaction document, you can probably tell that's where a name was. Make sure that they've actually cited that section of law to take names 
you know, out to protect that person's privacy. If there's records you think are missing or that you should have gained access to, you can either call that FY coordinator back and say, hey, I don't think that you did this correctly. And, you know, maybe in that case they say, okay, I'll totally redo it for you or I'll get you those missing records. Or maybe they just say, too bad. And that's where you basically want to start preparing some kind of appeal. And here you just want to write out all of the context. I think the more information that these people in the Office of the Information Commissioner in each different province and the federal one have, the more they can help you. And writing out the context for filing requests, why did you want the information, you know, detail some of the different communications you've had with the coordinator, what sections of law did they use to withhold information, why do you disagree with those sections, what information did you expect to get that you didn't, and just send that off. And eventually then, you know, the process kind of continues, you get a call from that agency now, and they'll either mediate a conversation between you and the FY coordinator, so it'll be like a three-way phone call, and they'll try and help you get what you were looking for, uh, or they might even just get investigated, which happens every now and then. So it's at least worth filing an appeal. So you have both kind of uh, chatted a little bit about um, some issues that you've had with the disclosure of information. And you mentioned that you have to provide legal arguments to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. Is that true? Have you done that uh, several times? Yeah, I think that we've done it a lot, um, especially on the last project that we worked on together. Uh, it involved filing, I think we did over 100 different police agencies in Canada and, and maybe something like 30 in the United States, because you can also file these requests uh, in most states in, in America. And so we did like you know over 100 different agencies that we were fi filing the exact same request with. We were asking for information about um, paid duty policing, which is just when different businesses and different people basically hire the police. Um, for security or, or whatever afterwards, uh, and corporate sponsorship. And we were filing that request also with, with Randy Lippert, who was, um, I guess, I mean, Kevin and Randy Lippert were basically the PIs on that project. Uh, and so we would file the same request with all these agencies, and sometimes they would give us the information, sometimes they wouldn't, or sometimes they would want thousands of dollars to process it, and sometimes they would do it for relatively cheap. Um, and so whenever we faced... Uh, some kind of obstacle there to getting the information, we would then go to the Office of the Information Commissioner. If we couldn't do it another way, sometimes we would uh, informally just call the coordinator and use different strategies for convincing them that they should release it. This I need a little bit more information on. How, what are some of these strategies to convince these, uh, these people to release more information? I think Kevin probably has his own, but one that I could say is that Sometimes we would just let them know that other agencies in their area or in their province had already disclosed it. Mm. Um, like if there's like a bunch of small agencies, they get this request, maybe they don't receive many FOI requests in a given year, so it kind of scares them. Mm. Um, and then maybe we had already done the same request with a larger agency in their area that they probably look up to uh, and respect. And so sometimes you just call them and you'd say like, look, this agency already did it. They already gave it to us. And I can even give you the request and, and show you the way that they processed it. Mm. And they're usually happy to have that. Wow. And so you would just kind of send it to them. And I mean, this is not something that you are trained to do in FOI, mm -hmm. and it's not mm -hmm. in the law. You, nowhere does it encourage you to do this. So mm -hmm. this is part of the reason that we try to think of it as a craft, because you kind of have, do have to be creative mm -hmm. in, in the strategies that you use to get this information. But that would usually work. Mm -hmm. I think Kevin has his own ways of convincing them. Yeah, you, you could also... Sometimes you could invoke the section of the act 
that allows you to view the originals. And then they say, oh, that would actually be more time consuming for us. So we'll just reduce this fee here and you can have the disclosure. If you threaten to take up more of their time, then they'll, they'll pony up with the request. You could even suggest that you're interested in taking some kind of legal action because you can, you can sue government agencies for, for documents. Matthew Yeager has a good paper on, on this, actually, and uh, it, it's possible. You'd need a lot of money, and you'd need probably an actual lawyer to get involved in this. But if you say you're, you're willing to go down that road, sometimes that can also turn the tables and, and they might release some data. Oh, and we can give an example, I guess, like without naming them. I mean, we, I think we've only done it once or twice, maybe. Kevin also did it in the context of America where, yeah, I mean, you just, you do kind of threaten to potentially take legal action against them. I mean, you're completely bluffing. Mm-hmm. In this case, I don't think either of us has a great lawyer or millions of dollars or would actually take any of these cases um, to court. But sometimes you just write it in that, you know, if they don't give you the information and you don't get the information upon appeal, then the next step might be to, to go legal, to take it to the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has worked. Both of you kind of also alluded to the fact that they can easily, uh, or they can figure out who you are and what your intentions are and then um, release information a little bit politically. Um, do you think that these, uh, they call them like A-tip coordinators often, right? The people, the gatekeeper, gatekeepers, if you will. Yeah, ATIP or FOI coordinators. Mm-hmm. Do you find that they like might, or have you had any examples or experience with them looking you up, and um, or has anything like that happened? I I guess this is the conspiracy theorist in me, where I would think like, oh, it's really easy to just type in Google, oh Kevin Walby, and and see uh, what you're going after. I'm sure that they they do. I'm sure that they even share sometimes with the Office of Primary Interest. That's the office that you're trying to get the records out of. I'm sure they share information, especially if you're a repeat user with an agency. Like sometimes we've sent requests to some agency 20, 30 times and they get used to dealing with you. And at some point, the police chief or police superintendent's probably like, who is this person? But it's, it's never really come to any point where like they're following FOI users around. Mm-hmm. Although that, there have been stories where Investigative journalists in the U.S. have been followed around by security intelligence agencies, police agencies, and sometimes allegedly kind of knocked off by someone when they get really close to a, a story. Hopefully that doesn't happen to us at some point. So what, if you don't mind me asking, what agency have you submitted the most FOI requests to? Perhaps CSIS, perhaps Winnipeg Police Service. Some of them you end up Depending on the project or if there's multiple projects that are looking at the same agency, you end up sending one every couple of weeks Mm. for years and years, and then you have this kind of data set that maybe you didn't even intentionally intentionally want to build, but based on these several requests, now you have all these files and you can start to see connections maybe that you weren't even trying to put together to begin with. Mm-hmm. So in that in that way, it can be pretty fruitful. Mm-hmm. Are you on a first name basis with any uh, uh, FOI coordinators? Typically, it's it's kind of not a real friendly relationship. There's some who are pretty professional and pretty friendly, but there's some who are just standoffish right away, and they're 
they make it pretty clear that they don't even really like that you're using these requests to try mm. to get stuff about the agency. Even if they they did know our first names, they might not want to use them just because they don't have that kind of level of respect, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think there's often more than one, too, that you do these requests, I think you might become familiar with that person, especially if they're calling you a lot and emailing you a lot to try mm-hmm. and figure out what information you're looking for and you're communicating a lot, then you kind of become on a first-name basis. But then if you file the request again at the same agency, six months, it might be a different person. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's usually, it's depending on the size of the agency. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's just, you know, interestingly, sometimes there's just one person, uh, particularly when you file it with a really small police agency, and that person might have zero formal training and experience with actually processing an FOI request. Mm-hmm. And there have been incidents, I think, where both of us have filed requests and we're also kind of simultaneously training the person on how to do an FOI because, you know, there are cases where agencies exist in Canada and don't really receive FOIs, mm-hmm. small towns in Ontario. That's an interesting dynamic. You're sort of training, or, or you might be the first time that a coordinator actually goes through this process and, and you have dealt with it hundreds of times. Uh, can you tell us something about that? Because that seems really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there was, this, there was a really small town in Ontario that was part of that paid duty project, and it was clear that this person had never even seen, I think, an FOI request before, didn't even know that their agency was subject to FOI, mm-hmm. uh, and they responded in a particularly odd way, kind of saying that we were like these, I think they wrote back this letter that said, based on their assessment, they think that we have malicious intent or something like that. And it seems like from him calling around other jurisdictions and finding out that we also filed the same FOI request with them, which we did because mm-hmm. it was part of a cross-national examination of these practices and we wanted this data. Mm-hmm. He said, that's evidence that you are trying to bog down public institutions mm-hmm. by filing these FOI requests and creating more work for them, which takes them away from the actual work they should be doing. Uh, and on this basis, like we're not going to comply with your request and we just ended up I think we just called him mm-hmm. and just kind of said like what is this right and just had a conversation and it became clear that this person had never really seen an FOR request we explained to them no, no this is part of a project it's funded by it was funded by Shirk and mm-hmm. it's legitimate for researchers uh, and you know we gave them some ways that they could process the request without taking a lot of their time yeah just kind of said, like, look, you probably, based on our experience, you probably have a record like this in your files. This is all we want. Mm-hmm. And, and he kind of just said, okay, that's all you want? Fine, I'll talk about the chief. I'll give it to you. I want to switch it up just a little bit and ask about the actual information. The theme of this podcast is noise, is, is about noise. And noise is sort of everywhere. Confusion, things that miscommunication. In terms of FOI, you get a lot of not misleading information but there are uh, redactions that take place there are uh, there's this gatekeeper that determines what information is going to be given to you how do you use this um, what some have called sort of unreliable uh, information um, in your own scientific research that is supposed to be based on uh, uh, methodological standards um, that are uh, pretty robust and this is a relatively new um, data collection techniques. So could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a few few ways that we try to address those types of questions. One is we, we never really just get one record or one page of one record and, and make claims about it. We really try to build up a dossier uh, of, of these records 
so that we can, within those records, kind of find different points of reference that overlap and confirm some kinds of observations we're making. We also combine these records with other types of records. It could be stuff that's already out there uh, on a government website or some speech that a politician has made, or we could compare these records to content analysis or discourse analysis of news records. Sometimes we combine them with interviews. Sometimes we'll do interviews with some workers. And then we'll use FOI or vice versa. Sometimes we'll use FOI and then we'll do some interviews to kind of check on some of these things we're seeing or go further with some questions. So in that way, like a lot of other kinds of qualitative research, we always want to try to triangulate data points and sources so that we are, we're not making claims that are spurious or, or off of the mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in our own research, we rarely ever just use FOI alone. It's always yeah. in combination with, like you said, open source materials or interviews or you know, observations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's arguably the best, or at least the best practice in terms of using FOI in, in social science research is to incorporate it into your research design as just one tool next to others. Um, and and that's, that's the best way to do it. So we tend to think about FOI as being an issue solely of transparency and government accountability. Um, but is that the only issue that we're talking about here? I think it's a large part of it. Uh, and in a lot of our work, we've tried to highlight the different ways that FOI can basically allow you to gain access to information that's very banal and just generally informs you about how that government agency operates, um, but doesn't necessarily expose any kind of wrongdoing or misconduct or practices that we as you know citizens would disagree with. But that's the other type of data is that sometimes you do get access to what Gary Marks called you know dirty data, which is basically information that does show some kind of wrongdoing or misconduct. And this is often the information that journalists are most interested in. And so we have often discussed in our work how FOI is directly related to transparency and that we know more about how an agency operates, but also accountability and that sometimes we gain access to information that we want people to know about um, so that they can hopefully hold that agency accountable and get that practice to change or go away. Then on the other hand, and we've written about this in a paper that we did on different ways of theorizing FOI and ATI, and that's that I don't think that FOI always um, makes government agencies more transparent and more clear. And I guess this relates to your podcast, which is about noise. On the one hand, sometimes issues seem very clear until we start conducting these FOI requests, and then we get access to documents that challenge the official narrative and make things a lot more complicated. I mean, that can add to the general noise. We then have a lot more questions about how things are being done. But FOI alone doesn't often answer all those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that often these requests, in the case of agencies that want to disclose information to you in a way that's not really going to undermine them or disclose any kind of practices that are problematic, they can basically they can do a couple of techniques. They can do one where they disclose way too much information. Mm. And in this one is hilarious, where they basically just print I mean, I can name an agency that has done this. Do it, please. Our financial intelligence unit is FinTrack, is one of the agencies that I filed a few requests with. 
And in one case, they refused to send me the electronic file, which under access to information law, I mean, they're required to give it to you if the document is originally in electronic format, which these were. Mm -hmm. But instead, they printed them and mailed them. And the other thing that they did was they, rather than calling you about what kind of information you're interested in, um, trying to narrow it down for you, and they basically just interpret your request very broadly. Uh, and so from this agency in this particular request, it was all printed, and I think I received something like six or 7,000 pages of just parcels full of information, you know, like 20 pounds of information. I mean, they just and they, try to overwhelm you. They so just you overwhelm you. And it's not even that a lot of this information might have nothing to do with what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. It might have been very clear to the FOI coordinator what you were looking for, but, you know, maybe under direction of the head of an agency or something else, they just told, no, just give them everything. Uh, and yeah, I mean, as a researcher who only has so much time, especially if you're a graduate student who is you know, under very specific deadlines to mm -hmm. produce it within a certain amount of time, are you going to go through 6,000 pages of information in search of, you know, some needle in that haystack that might be interesting, or maybe there's nothing interesting in it at all? Mm -hmm. Maybe, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe not. And so in that way, I think that sometimes FOI can be about transparency and accountability, but it can also make things very confusing. It can be uh, a tool that makes matters a lot more noisy, uh, raises a lot more questions than it provides answers. Mm. Um, and I think that has to be taken into consideration so that we don't just fall into kind of um, blindly calling any FOI request, you know, a move towards greater transparency because it's, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And I, can, I can give an example, a very specific example of this. Um, so some research that I was doing with uh, William Walters at Carleton University on a former intelligence agency that was run by the Americans and the British during the Cold War. And it's a very peculiar site. It's called Cobra Mist, or Operation Cobra Mist. Uh, it was basically a radar intelligence agency that the remnants of it are still sitting there now uh, in England in a town called Orford. And this place has basically become a major site for uh, conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. <laughs> particularly UFO conspiracy theory, who I guess are called ufologists. Ufologists. <laughs> I learned that word and I, I thought it was interesting. But in that case, Cobra Mist is, has been the subject of a lot of different TV documentaries. It's kind of, I think, a pretty boring intelligence operation that just basically failed to achieve its purpose. But for people who live next to it or who believe in UFOs and other things, they've basically grabbed onto this intelligence station, which still sits there now, just an old building. And they just kind of use whatever information is available on it, even if that information clearly shows that it was just a boring failure of an operation that shut down and the government didn't disclose a lot about it because it was a political failure and embarrassment. They use that information in a very different way. They use that information and they spin it in a way that reinforces their theories about UFOs and aliens. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting point here is that a lot of the information that was released on this operation from the Pentagon and other agencies was done through FOI. Mm -hmm by conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. And when you go through this information, it's just like reading any other government document, and they've basically done FOI, they've produced more records. Arguably, it added to the transparency of this operation to most people, but to them, it doesn't. And you can find entire blogs where they make this FOI information available, they analyze it, and, and then they use it to basically 
add to the noise of this operation and spin it to support their narrative that we don't know everything about this station. Um, the truth is yet to be revealed. It's a government cover-up. So yeah, I think that's a crucial way in which FOI does not necessarily mean transparency. Yeah, that's the, that's the sort of big critique of FOI, right? Like you can spin this information. You're only getting a piece of the pie, so you can uh, spin it in any way that uh, uh, that you sort of want to. And this uh, kind of highlights that, I guess, a little bit, um, but highlights how FOI could actually make things even more noisy. Yeah, and I think it's it's critique. I wouldn't use the word critique. I'd say it's more of just a, a caution that mm. you don't. There's there's a number of assumptions that you have to avoid making. Just like they, I think they're the same assumptions that you make when you analyze any information um, on government agencies. Right? You you don't go interview somebody, a police officer, say, and take everything they say at face value and say this is how you know it worked. Well, who told you that? Well, this police officer did. So that's how mm-hmm. things work. I mean, you gotta you got to ask questions about deception, whether it was true, and whether you're missing some context and information. And it's the same with FOI. You don't just get some piece of data and say, oh, this is what that agency is doing, because technically you don't even really know if that information was ever used. I mean, if there was a PowerPoint presentation that was done within a government agency, and do you know that that PowerPoint was uh, actually used to kind of structurally overhaul the agency or result in some change in practices i mean maybe it did maybe it didn't and that i think is a crucial caution for using foi that you've got to be careful about what assumptions you make about what the data means but also that you've got to combine that data with other sources interviews open source things and try to like just like a journalist does try to make sure that um the claims you're going to make based on that data are accurate Mm -hmm. and what what uh we've kind of indirectly spoken about your research and what it's been on. Uh, we've, we've talked about pay duties like a little bit, but could you give us an idea of a couple projects or maybe even just one or two that you're currently working on that's utilizing FOI um, and get a little bit more uh, specific in terms of how we might actually use this data in a research project? So with, with a, a guy named Brendan Rosier here at uh, University of Winnipeg, we've been using FOI requests to get deployment records from SWAT teams in Canadian policing. And these records aren't on any websites. They're not anywhere to be found. So FOI is the only way to get at these records. And we're interested in frequency of deployment over time. So we go back to 2007, 2007 to 2017. We're charting kind of the uptick in most places frequency of use of SWAT teams. And then we're also looking at types of deployments. So there's the really interesting thing is it's not just deployment of SWAT teams to deal with emergencies in public, maybe mass public casualty, active shooter type of scenarios that are used to justify the growth of SWAT teams. Actually, SWAT teams are being used for community policing, traffic policing, mental health calls, domestic disturbance calls to serve warrants where they're said to be some kind of high risk, but also just regular warrants where they, they don't have any sense that there is great risk to the officers. So the, that's the interesting part of it is that we've also found SWAT teams are doing all this regular duty policing, actually, and we wouldn't have been able to tell that just from 
looking at the website. So we use different ways of analyzing these data to try to explain the relevance of them. Sometimes we're using content analysis, sometimes we're using discourse analysis. And this, this is something Alex and I have written about. If we want to communicate this to other sociologists, other social scientists, the, the merit of using FOI, we have to couch it in the language of existing methodological debates. So we've, we've written a paper recently on using content analysis, discourse analysis, social network analysis, and metaphor analysis, just some of the ways we make sense of these data and the different projects we're working on. To follow up on Kevin's last point there about the work we've started to do in terms of thinking about you know, existing methods within the social sciences as well as new ones for analyzing data and how FOI might fit within that. And I think one of the really interesting things about FOI is that just the sheer variety of types of information that you can get. You can get emails, large email chains, you can get PowerPoint presentations and decks, you can get the speaker notes that went with those you know, presentations. And these might be presentations that were only conducted internally within the organization, so you wouldn't otherwise have access to it. You can get large Excel sheets that, that the bureaucracy that you're interested in uses to just keep track of things, right? It's, it's invented, it's a tool that's used by them to keep track of it, but we can use it as researchers to do other things like research that a bit of research that we've done on corporate sponsorship of police where the police department often usually keeps track of any corporation that's given them money mm-hmm. um, and maybe something that they've done in return for them and where that money went and how it was used. And these just get kept in large Excel sheets that can be analyzed using traditional statistical methods or it could be used using social network analysis where mm-hmm. you just basically turn it into a, a network matrix that just consists of who's giving money, where, how are they using it, how is that money solicited, and you can just build up a network in that way. There's basically the memoranda of understanding, right, that are between different organizations. So you can get a sense of what's the agreement that one organization has with another, like CSIS and RCMP or, or whatever, and you mm-hmm. can find out uh, what kind of contract and relation do they have based on that document. Again, that's not something that they disclose. It's not on their website. Mm-hmm. But as a citizen, you have access to it mm-hmm. um, legally, so you just have to file the FOI request. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, that sheer variety of types of information um, makes it very amenable to a bunch of different methods that you can use to analyze it. Yeah, it seems like a, a very, very useful uh, data source for, uh, for understanding uh, information, or government information that's often heavily guarded. Uh, and it seems like uh, more scholars should, should move in this direction to try to at least uh, start looking at FOI as a legitimate uh, uh, data source. Because I think a lot of uh, political sociology, political science, criminology, sociology in general, tends to make inferences about um, what's happening behind the curtain of government um, without actually uh, having data. And I have two experts in the room on this, so I have to ask, what's the future of FOI research? Or where do you see the future going um, in this area? I think part of what we've been doing writing these pieces on FOI is just trying to explain the merits and the challenges of using FOI. There are merits and challenges of all kinds of methodological techniques that are already kind of normalized in social science and and with FOI that, that are not. But we want it to become kind of part of the toolkit that critical social scientists can use to investigate these types of, of agencies and, and hopefully by contributing to those discussions, more people will get interested, more people will undertake the craft of trying to learn some of these techniques that we've been talking about and they can dig deeper into the questions that they have about what governments are up to. The 
larger goal of what we do is that we just hope that more people start using it, mm -hmm. um, more people see the usefulness in ways that they can incorporate into their own research projects. But I guess we also are trying to build, I think, a framework for incorporating FOI into research where we're basically explicitly writing about things like FOI and research ethics, FOI in theory, FOI and criteria for quality, you know, standards of, of doing scare quotes here, reliability and, and validity and, and kind of how that, how FOI relates to those larger concepts that we use within the social sciences to frame up our methods. Mm -hmm. And so I think ideally, if you're going to use FOI within the social sciences, you'd have to use it very systematically and be very explicit about how you used it, keeping very detailed field notes and memos about the entire process of getting access to information um, and tie it to these larger concepts mm -hmm. within methodological discussions. And I think that, uh, I hope, in the future is what the use of FOI would, would look like. That sounds interesting, and I, I, I want to uh, in, embark on FOI in my own research because I think it's a, a very, very useful tool. Um, but I know, Kevin, I know you have to uh, get going. So where can people find you or find information on FOI if they're interested? We have an article in Qualitative Research that I think kind of summarizes a lot of the, the insights that we've shared and built up regarding FOI. We've got a couple other papers. I can't even remember where they're published. Uh, where are they there's published? a bunch of papers. Yeah, I, know I, that. I think we there's papers in uh, there's one on research ethics in the mm -hmm. journal research ethics is one in qualitative research right that's on criteria for for quality in using it. We have articles in different policing studies things and where we're actually using these laws to generate information for police police departments and combining it with other sources. You can see it in action. And I think if people consulted a lot of those resources and just go through our references. You can see that you'd find a lot of the other people in the UK and the US uh, and other countries that are also using FOI and mm -hmm. also thinking about, you know, the methodological aspects of FOI mm -hmm. and applying it. And so I think just checking out some of our articles and the references and, mm -hmm. and looking at other people's work in this area, mm -hmm. there you'd see that there's a massive literature that's starting to develop around mm -hmm. FOI. Great. And if people are interested in you two more generally, are there any websites, Twitter handles? Now's the time for a shout out uh, if you want. Yeah, I have a Twitter um, I try to be pretty active on it. My handle is Alex J. Luscombe. I also have a website, which is just alexluscombe.com. And on there, you can find my other contact details, like my email, if you want to get in touch. I don't even have a cell phone. <laughs> I'm trying not to be, you know, gazed upon by the electric eye. Fair, fair eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. On that note, I want to thank both of you um, for sitting down and having this wonderful discussion on FOI. So thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, Alex. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise. Mm -hmm.